0: We're going to pick back up discussing more of the reasons that we believe the Bible teaches that we as Christians are called to live in real, authentic community with one another. Our conviction is that the Bible doesn't encourage us to do community, but to be a community. Do you see the difference there? To to do community um, or to do something, it kind of has a connotation of, of a start and a stop. And it seems when we do certain things like outreach together or even community groups or small group Bible studies, that in those times we can be doing community, but when the scheduled activity stops, we kind of go back to being separate individuals individuals or family units um, to be a community in contrast. So that's when, when you kind of attempt to do community, you can get together certain times, scheduled events, do something as a community, but then kind of fragment back off and, and do your own deal the difference in being a community is that it, it, it really means twenty four seven all the time we understand and live as if we are inextricably connected to another that we can 't be pulled apart that our lives are brought together like like the individual strands of, of yarn, and then when God takes them as the grand weaver and he weaves these things together, what you end up with those individual strands you could have yellow, red, and blue, these different colors of yarn. And, By themselves, they're unremarkable, but you take them, you put them in the hand of a grand weaver that knows what to do with them, and he weaves those things together, you can come out with a beautiful tapestry that speaks to the glory and to the genius of the one that made it. We are the threads. God takes us and weaves us together in such a way that if we were pulled apart, we would not have as much effect. There's not as much beauty apart as there is together. And so... God is that grand weaver and I'm, I'm just glad to be a part of what he's doing. Um, earlier in this, in this series, we saw the same principle in a parable that Jesus taught as he gave instructions concerning our connectedness. Um, in John 15, Jesus teaches that he is the vine and we are the branches, right? This is one of the, one of the most beautiful parables that Jesus teaches. So here's what he says. He, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So what's he doing in this? He's First of all, he's letting you know he's the source of life because the vine is the thing, right, that goes down, connects to the ground. It's the thing that pulls up water and nutrients from the soil. The very source of life is Jesus himself. And, And he says, and you are the branches. And so what I think oftentimes we miss, sometimes we get this false belief that, well, I can be connected to Jesus, but I don't necessarily need to be connected to his people. Well, if I'm a branch connected to a vine who else am I connected to? The other branches. And so it's, it's erroneous. It's false to believe that you can be connected to Jesus but not his people. Right? And sometimes that that sentiment is born out of lots of things. Sometimes people, they, they open up their heart and they, they end up having a bad experience. Man, somebody hurts them. Somebody that is a Christian or a supposed Christian or somebody in a church and they get burned and they decide, you know what? I'll be better by myself. I'll just be a branch over here. The problem is to separate from the rest. Jesus goes on to talk in John 15. He said, you're going to dry up and wither. You'll be gathered up to be burned. If we're connected to Christ, we're connected to each other. You can't avoid it. You happy about that or you sad about that? I'm real happy about it. I'm glad that God puts his people together with varying gifts and talents and interests. And when he puts those groups of people together, what you get is a group that is stronger than they were as individuals. Many of you are great at things that I'm terrible at. Put us together, now we're a stronger team. I think God does this in marriage, right? Sometimes we foolishly let this make, be frustrating for us. God will give a man a wife that maybe, well, I'll just use my example. God gave me a wife that's, she's real organized and, you know, I'm not super organized. You know, I'm, I'm real passionate and come up with a good plan and say, Raw, let's go do it with no detailed plan of how to get there. So, but she's good because God gave her to me and, but I can't get frustrated when she says, honey, absolutely, we can get everybody in Cincinnati saved in two years. That's a good plan, but let's put some detail to that. You know, I can't be frustrated when the gift of God in her starts to come out to try to help me, right? But yet we do that sometimes in marriage and in in, uh, a church family or church congregation. There are different gifts and we need to see that variety and that diversity as strength because it is. That's why God puts us together. He will not gift any of us with everything that it's going to take to accomplish the mission he's given us. He will not give any one of us everything it takes, and he does it on purpose because he loves us, and he wants us to see our need to be connected with each other. He's created us to live in community, okay? Some of you are getting sad. Some of you are getting glad. We'll just pray by the end that everybody's frown is upside down, right? (laughs) Was that a rap? Did I just write a rap? Somebody write that down put that on iTunes. Okay. Um, so here's the thing. Here at Love City, we believe real community is possible when we all orient and center our lives around a single goal. And we also call this single goal our vision. Okay? And so our vision is to see as many people as possible meet Jesus. You may say, well, that's a simple vision. Well, that's on purpose. Because everyone, any, anybody that comes here more than once should be able to rattle that off. It's not very hard. It's not very many words. It's one sentence. Our vision is to see as many people as possible meet Jesus, because it is all about him. Jesus is the one that came and built a bridge between hopeless sinners and the God that made them. That is Jesus. He's our king. He's our savior, redeemer, and he's our Lord. And we're really happy about it. We want as many people as possible to know him, to know the joy of serving him. That's our deep conviction. So that is the goal. That's the goal we set high. Now, we believe if you truly meet Jesus, you will love him. And if you love him, you will obey him. And if you obey him, you will have unshakable peace and joy, even in the midst of trials and difficulties. It may be hard for some of you to understand, but if you study the scriptures and you see what it is that God offers through relationship with Christ, is not that you will never have trouble. And anybody that tries to convince you that if you become a Christian, all of a sudden, Life will be, you know, nothing but skipping through fields of daisies and, you know, just sheer bliss all the time. You'll never have problems. That's not the case. However, the promise of the scriptures is that if you will trust Jesus, if you will, if you will love and you will obey him and, and you will get to the point where you believe what his word says, even when trouble comes, you will have peace and you will have joy through it. The scriptures go so far as to say those of us that really believe what Jesus has said, that we can lift our hands and rejoice in the midst of tribulation. Now that sounds really weird. It doesn't sound like the right reaction. Something bad happens, what's normal? Complain, you know, tell somebody how bad it was, think about, you know, how unfair it is. Very rarely is our response, hmm, that's a bummer. Lord, you're glorious. Yet this is what the scriptures call us to unshakable peace, unshakable joy. That in no situation, no matter how bad it gets on the outside, are you rattled on the inside. This is the promise of the scriptures. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. Now our mission is, our mission, which is the way we accomplish the vision. So we have a goal. We believe that God has called us into existence to see as many people as possible meet Jesus. Now the mission is the way we accomplish that vision. You got to have that plan, right? And so the way we're going to get there, the way we're going to accomplish the goal is to love God, love people, and make disciples. And we believe that living in community is one of the ways we accomplish all three of these, right? So it all ties back together. Us living in real community is part of how we're going to love God, love people, and make disciples, which is going to get us to the goal of seeing as many people as possible meet Jesus, right? So that's the plan. Uh... We believe that community groups are going to be the main way we build a real, authentic, and strong community for God's glory and for our good, okay? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit repeat, but it's on purpose. Remember, our vision is about people meeting Jesus. So, I'm, gonna, I'm giving you the answer before I give you the quiz. So, I'm going to give you three chances to guess whose life we're going to look at today to see if they lived in real, authentic community. Hold on, I'll give you a hint first. It's the same person who this church belongs to. So Love City, who does this church belong to? Jesus. 100% score. Great job. You passed. Okay? It's amazing. You guys are amazing pupils. All three of you that answered. Let's try one more time because everybody knows this, right? Who does this church belong to? Love City? Jesus. Jesus. Clearly, he's the king. He's the master. He's Lord. We do everything he says, right? And we're happy about it. This isn't my church. I don't let people call this my church. God called me to to plant this church, but it's his. You're his people. I work for him, okay? Amen. Uh, So we're going to bring it back to King Jesus like we always do. We're going to look at his life for instruction on how to live with and relate to one another. We're going to see, how did Jesus do community? Did it seem from his life that it was an An emphasis for him. If our vision is all about Jesus, if if we talk about him and his gospel all the time, then we should look at his life and see. If I'm trying to convince you that you should live in real, vibrant, authentic community, I should be able to point you out, point to the fact that Jesus did the same, right? And so let's look at the scriptures. Let's see if Jesus did emphasize and live in community himself, okay? Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 26. We're gonna be in verse 17, Matthew 26, 17. Now, we're going to look at the life of Jesus and see if he practiced the three elements that make up our community groups, okay? I'm going to give you those three elements, and then we're going to see, are these things that Jesus did? Because anything that Jesus did, I want to do. Other than things like claiming to be God, if you do that, we're going to have to have a special meeting, okay, (laughs) with you all by yourself, all right? Uh, don't claim to be God, but pretty much everything else Jesus did and said, we want to emulate. That is the life we follow. Part of what Jesus came to do was set a perfect example. When we want to know how is it that you can live in community, how is it that you can really have authentic relationships with people that lead to mutual life change. We want to look at the master. We want to look at King Jesus and see what he did. Okay? So I'm going to give you the three elements that we have built into these community groups. They're modeled after Jesus' life. Here they are, uh, meals and fellowship, scripture study and discussion, and then prayer and accountability. So we'll take each one of those and we'll look, uh, we'll look in order whether or not these were vibrant parts of Jesus' life, okay? So the question is, did Jesus participate in meals and fellowship? So we're going to read Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 17 and read uh, to verse 30, okay? Okay. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me, being deeply grieved, they each one begin to say to him, "Surely not I, Lord." And he answered, "He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, "Surely it is not I, rabbi." Jesus said to him, "You have said it yourself." While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And we had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out from many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, here's a few things we want to point out from this. First of all, we just see clearly uh, Jesus sharing a meal with his men. This was not odd. This was not out of the ordinary for him. This is something he did very often. You see it all through the scriptures. Jesus ate with his boys. They got down. You know, they're going to have a strategy meeting. Okay, we're going to go into this town, heal people, tell them the good news. We're going to pray for them. Oftentimes, they'd sit down around a meal to do that. Okay, Jesus understood the value of sitting down and having a meal with somebody. Uh, it builds trust, it builds relationship. Uh, One thing I want you to see here, in verse 18 he says, go into the city and say to a certain man, the teacher says, my time is near. I want to call your attention to the fact that Jesus is very aware that he is coming up on the last hours of the time he's going to be here on earth, right? Because the rest, you guys know the rest of the story, right? So this this dinner ends, then they they go to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus is praying, he's greatly vexed in his spirit, we're actually going to look at that in a minute, and then then what happens? Judas brings the guards, right? He's betrayed, then he's taken to Pilate, right? And then he ends up crucified on the cross. So it's not that much time left that he's gonna be here on earth with his men. And see, some of us, would we'd be more spiritual than Jesus. If it's, well, I don't have much time left, well, I should grab everybody and, you know, just go fast and pray and don't do anything else. Well, what did Jesus count as a worthy activity in some of his last hours here on earth? Sat down and had a meal with his men. Sat down and shared, broke bread with him. Spoke to him. Talked to him again over a meal. Apparently, Jesus thought that was okay. Um, if you're more spiritual than Jesus ever, <laughs> it's normally an issue, okay? Um, a few other things that I would point out to you. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't withdraw into solitude to mourn, but he gathers with his disciples who's, who he has called his friends for a meal and for fellowship, knowing it's his last hours. Uh, there are many other references to Jesus sharing meals uh, throughout the, the Gospels. Luke 7, 34 and Matthew eleven nineteen, 19 both say that Jesus came eating and drinking. He spent so much time doing this that the stuffy religious know-it-alls of the day uh, accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Again, guys apparently more spiritual than the God who made them. Always a problem. (laughs) Never, never going to work out, okay? Uh, We see that Jesus not only eats often with his men, but with sinners. Jesus not only realized that eating with his disciples was a way to build trust, relationship. It was uh, a good centerpiece for quality fellowship and, and for them to be able to speak to each other. But he knew there was an evangelistic value. He was willing to go and eat with the people that... All the guys that were, that were too religious, they, they wouldn't do that, they wouldn't associate with tax collectors and sinners and, and these guys that were, were dirty and should never be around them. Jesus apparently didn't have that opinion. He was willing to go sit down at the table with them and, and, and just be in their presence and he was willing to build relationship with them even before they had repented of their sin. And he asked us to do the same. Now, that doesn't mean we go all the time and only spend time we have to have a balance just like Jesus did, right? If all you're ever doing and the only people you ever spend time with are those that have not put faith in Christ, there's not going to be any iron sharpening iron in your life. There's not going to be anybody challenging you to good works as the Bible instructs us to do, okay? So there does have to be balance, and we want to follow Jesus' example in that as well. Uh, other examples of Jesus using meals for ministry, spending time eating, Jesus threw some of the biggest picnics history has ever recorded, Okay? and they weren't even potlucks. It wasn't like bring a dish to pass, you know. It always seems like when you do that and you don't coordinate, you end up with like so much potato salad and nothing else that's that's that good. So if we ever do a potluck, let me just say, whoever organizes that, let's let's let people know what dishes are already being brought, okay, I I don't wanna eat a bunch of potato salad. Let's get some other cool stuff going on, all right? You girls getting on Pinterest these days, there's so many exotic, cool things. You can add some, you know, coriander and nutmeg, and just go for it, all right? Let's get some variety. Anyways, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So, uh, Jesus threw big picnics. Um, we see in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus calls a huddle. He calls the guys around. He says, listen, these people, they've been following us for days. There's, there's no food nearby. We need to feed them. And he, he asks his disciples what they had to eat. And they say, seven loaves of bread and a few fish. Jesus blesses this stuff and says, go pass it out. And they feed 4,000 men plus women and children. Now this is where some of you can tend to disconnect because um, you've been raised in a culture that teaches you that the supernatural is not real, that only the tangible, physical, able to be explained by science are things that should be believed. Clearly what's being claimed here in the scriptures is that a miracle happened. Jesus had the power to take a little bit of food and make it into a lot to sustain and provide for his people. That principle really comes in handy if you'll trust and believe it in your own life. Because you may be looking at what you got right now. You might be looking at what's in your hand, what's in your bank account, what's in your cupboard, what's in your gas tank. And you may be thinking, this isn't going to make it. But here's the thing. You serve a God that can multiply that. You serve a God that has promised to provide for you. And so in the same way that I don't have all the answers about where Love City is going to gather in a year from now, I am absolutely certain that the God of heaven does. I will not doubt him. And I will worship him with my trust because he has deserved that. He's earned that because he's never failed ever, ever, ever. Is that right or wrong? Right. That's right. Okay. So Jesus calls a huddle. We feed 4,000 people. Um, again, in, in another, another portion, uh, an event is recorded throughout the Gospels where they have five loaves and two fish from a little boy's lunch, and they feed 5,000 men plus women and children, right? So you're looking at the average family. Uh, People estimate from 15,000 to 20,000 people being there on the hillside. They've listened to Jesus preach. They followed him to hear the preaching. They were hungry for the word, and uh, Jesus has compassion on them. He says, well, we're all here. Grass is nice. Sun is shining. Let's picnic, right? And so what do we have to eat? Well, we got five loaves and two fishes. Jesus, not a problem. Bring it over here. He blesses it. He breaks it. He hands it out. Not only does it feed everybody, but they pick up a bunch of leftovers. Well, how does that happen, Pastor Vince? I don't really know. I'm not Jesus, but he's a miracle worker and clearly did something awesome. And so it happened. And um, it's, I don't know, it's amazing. And he'll do it for you too. Okay? So clearly uh, Jesus ate with his men. He ate with sinners. He ate with people that were uh, following him to learn the word. Uh, Have you ever wondered, I don't know, maybe some of you aren't that familiar with the story or haven't thought about it enough, those stories where Jesus multiplies bread and fish and feeds thousands of people. I, I just I wonder if like, touched by Jesus miracle bread would taste better. Do you think it would? Like, surely it would have to. Yeah, I, I would think so. Like, just the best bread you've ever had. I mean, it's it's it was a miracle that it even existed. So it's just it's got to be like totally premium. Um, <laughs> these are, these are some of the things I think when I read the Bible. Um, <laughs> maybe you just maybe you're bored when you're reading the Bible. Like, let your let, let yourself engage a little bit. Like. Think about eating bread that didn't exist a few minutes ago till Jesus prayed over a couple loaves and now we got enough to feed 15,000 people-ish. And you're eating that bread. Man, it had to be like Panera times 1,000. And I only know what Panera is because my wife and daughter like to go there for you guys that were worried. And you guys that like Panera, I'm worried, okay? Go to a barbecue place, all right? I love you. I love you, but if you're a dude and I see you eating out of a bread bowl, we're gonna talk, okay? (laughs) That's just what it is. I really do love you, though. Okay, so, um, in Luke 24, he eats with his disciples. uh, Last thing on Jesus' eating. So not only did he eat all through his life, look in Luke 24, this is amazing. He, He eats with his disciples after the resurrection. So Jesus lives the perfect life that we could never live. He dies the death that all of us should have died, goes into the grave for three days, comes back to life just like he said he would, hooks up with his disciples and says, you eating that fish? Grabs a piece of fish and eats it. Part of what he's doing is proving to them that he is raised from the dead, full bodily resurrection. He did not want them to walk away wondering, was that a figment of our imagination? Did we just hallucinate? Did we have a group hallucination? Like, you know, they're, they're looking in the, in the uh, dipping bowl like, did someone sprinkle mushrooms in here? What's going on? We all just saw Jesus, but we saw him die. How's that going on? Jesus ate right in front of them, partially to prove absolutely that he rose from the dead, that he bodily rose from the dead, that he wasn't just, it wasn't just his spirit, wasn't his ghost, wasn't anything else. Jesus rose from death, okay, and ate to prove it. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke 24, and we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to hang out in the Gospels today. It's always fun. We're going to see a lot about Jesus' life, what he did, how he carried himself, how he related to other people, because we want to learn from it. I want to relate to you the way that Jesus related to others. I want to have community the way Jesus had it with the people around him. The second element, the second thing we're going to we're gonna look at, so we want to know, first of all, did Jesus eat meals, and did Jesus fellowship? What do you think? With the scriptures we looked at, what do you think? We got a yay or a nay? Yay. Yes, Jesus clearly understood the importance of eating meals with people, and he used it all the time for effective ministry, okay? And so that's part of why the first part of community group, you're going to come in, and, uh, you know, we're not talking you know, 18 cheese macaroni and, and, you know, a huge salad and a T-bone. We're not talking about a full meal, but we're going to have something to eat there. So when we get together, we're going to put something in your hand that you can nibble on while you talk about life and laugh with people and have a good time, okay? We're going to follow the example of Jesus. We're going to eat something together. Um, How many of you just would generally say, I like food? Good. Those with hands down (laughs) are maybe not being honest. Um, So... (laughs) Hate food. I blend everything so I never have to chew. (laughs) Seriously, if that's you, I really love you, and I want to talk to you after the service because something's wrong. Okay. Um, So, but the vast majority of us enjoy having a meal, and most of us intuitively understand the value of having a meal with somebody, don't we? We invite people to to go sit down and 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 talk, spend time together. Many times we'll do that over a meal. We may just think that that's something cultural that we do. However, I think there's something in us that uh, That understands that there's a value to sit down eye to eye level with somebody and to to share a meal together. It does, it forms trust, it builds relationships. Jesus clearly knew that and did it, and so we're gonna do the same thing, okay? I think we've established from the scriptures, Jesus definitely did that. The second element, what we're going to look at, second element of community groups, did Jesus study and discuss the scriptures, okay? We're in Luke 24, verse 13. And I'm going to read to verse 27. Ready? Let's read together. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? It's a very poetic way to say, what are you talking about, isn't it? What are these words you're exchanging with each other? Leave it to Jesus. Um, And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Wouldn't you hate to be Cleopas, the guy that goes down in history for smarting off to Jesus (laughs) about himself? Cleopas, okay? Don't do the old, you know, Open up the Bible and point to name your kids and end up on Cleopas. Just do it again. Come up with a different name. Because this guy definitely pulled a doofus move here. Okay? Don't you know what's been going on? Well, yes, I do. Because I'm Jesus. Okay? Um, So he says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Right? So now Jesus is going to let them hang themselves (laughs) a little bit more. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet mighty indeed in and word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was gonna redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture." I mean, verse 27 is, I, I don't envy Cleopas because he's like, great example of foot in the mouth, smarting off to the Lord. But then, the Lord takes these guys. Can you imagine having Jesus himself sit you down with the Old Testament, start at Moses, and lay out everything about himself through the Old Testament? I mean, the Bible study of all Bible studies, right? That would be amazing. But that's what Jesus did. His men obviously were lacking in understanding, so what'd he do with them? First, he gave them a verbal, Psh, what's the matter with you? Okay, let's get the Bible out. I'm about to show you what the truth is. So yes, clearly Jesus did study the scriptures and he did discuss it with his men. Uh, we, all, we see all through the four gospels where Jesus would teach large crowds, then he would withdraw with his disciples and discuss it with them. He would let him ask them questions, and he would also give them an opportunity to discuss his answers. Uh, there are over 70 times in the gospel where Jesus refers to the Old Testament Scriptures as he teaches. Because clearly, as Jesus is walking on the earth, right, we don't have the entirety of the New Testament yet. It's not written. Actually, Jesus is living it out, right? Uh, it takes writers coming again, re- recording those historical events. And so the, the Scriptures that Jesus had to work with was the Old Testament. And he took his men to the Scriptures often taught them and helped them understand how it was, how he was coming to fulfill those, right? And this is just one of the examples where he sits down with these brothers and uh, says, starts at Moses. Can you just imagine? I don't know how long that took, but it had to have been awesome. I mean, I'd, I'd, I hope I can get in a line like a carnival ride when I get to heaven for that Bible study. Like Jesus, let, take me from Moses all the way through the prophets. I, I want to see it the way you see it. And he did that with his men. Um, Turn with me, if you would, to Mark 14, 32 through 42. The third element we're going to look at. So we see that Jesus clearly ate meals, used it for effective ministry. We see that Jesus all through uh, the four Gospels was sitting down with his men, teaching him the Scriptures, letting them ask questions, pointing to himself in the scriptures, which is part of the job of any good Bible teacher is to illuminate Christ in whatever it is you're teaching about. Uh, The third element that we're going to look at, the third question we're going to ask of Jesus' life is, did Jesus participate in prayer and accountability? Now, do you remember why we're doing this? We have three elements to community groups. We believe community groups are going to be key in us successfully fulfilling the mission God has given us. Right? And so, Part of this is to convince you of the value of community groups. Why are we going to do what we're going to do in community groups? Did we buy a book by a guru? No. We opened the scriptures and said, what did Jesus emphasize? That's what we've tried to build the entirety of this church's life and vision and mission on. What did Jesus, who is our king, seem to care a lot about? Well, when he was asked what was the most important thing to focus on, he said, love God, love people. And right before he ascended into heaven, Mark tw- Matthew 28 one of the last things he says to his men is go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say go make converts. He didn't, say, he didn't say just go and tell people the good news and your job is done. And sometimes we think that. Sometimes we think we can do something that makes a big attraction. We can get a bunch of people to show up and if we, if we work everything right, we can get hands raised at the end. People making commitments to Christ and we think we've done our job when really all we've done at that point is started at the very beginning. Our job as Christians, is to then be inconvenienced enough to lay down our lives, to go invest in those people's lives and to disciple them, to lead them into maturity in Christ and get them to the point where they then can go do the same. we got to go and make disciples, not just converts. You are called, dear one, to be a disciple maker. Do you understand the weight of that? That's a big deal. First of all, we have to meet the qualifications of a disciple ourselves to go and be a disciple maker. And a disciple is somebody that believes something with such passion and zeal, not only are they willing to admit they believe it, but they're willing to sacrifice to further it. So we look at our lives. Am I, do I fit the definition of a disciple? It, does it cost me something to be a Christian? Does it cost me something to further the good news of the gospel? This is the call. Jesus said to his men, Drop what you're doing, come and follow me. It's going to cost something. Now, as he said to go, therefore, and make disciples, there's a connotation in the language. It's kind of as you are going. God is not calling you to drop school, drop your job. Some of you he may, but the vast majority of you, he wants you to be a missionary in the midst of what you're doing. As you are going about your life, realize that every part of your life is tied to the mission of telling people about Jesus. Jesus. He's got you at the job he's got you at on purpose. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you it's not an accident. Where you live, it's not an accident. Look around. Ask God the question throughout your day. God, why is it that I'm here at this moment? He's sovereign. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. And he's got you there on purpose. Some of you can feel overwhelmed by that. And it is overwhelming if we don't remember that he's not only called us to this, but he's promised to empower us for it. It's going to take his anointing for you to do this. Absolutely. It's absolutely going to take God's power to be more worried about other people and their eternal destiny than your own convenience and what you got going on. That's not natural. Everything natural, everything in the flesh is, is about me, my schedule, you know, get rich or die trying, all that type of stuff, right? That's not what it's about, though. That's not what's real. And that's not where real joy is found. I mean, how many people scramble their whole life to rise to the top, get all the toys and all the money and all the stuff they thought was gonna bring happiness and find out at the end it's hollow. There's nothing to it. It's not real. God offers us a better way. We're in Mark 14, and we're gonna start in verse 32. We're looking at the question, Did Jesus participate in prayer and accountability? Now, many of you, you're gonna think that you have no need to be open and vulnerable with anyone. You may think something like, I can pray to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, so I don't need anybody else to pray for me. Now, we do have the beautiful privilege of direct prayer and direct access to God because of Christ, I agree with you. However, that does not eliminate our need for one another. Let's read this together. Mark 14, starting in verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and he again came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. We see here that when Jesus is at his most vulnerable He's struggling desperately with the weight of what he's about to endure on the cross. He breaks off into a smaller group with his closest men, asking that they keep watch and pray with him. Jesus himself. In his moment of desperation, I mean, have you made the connection to what he's going through here? Jesus knows very soon, within hours, he's going to be enduring not only the physical anguish of being crucified on the cross, which is, unimaginable, to have nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers on the body, the hands and the feet, to be beaten, and then to be hung there and left to die, open and exposed. Can you imagine knowing that that's gonna happen to you in several hours? Where would that put you mentally? It'd be difficult to deal with, and Jesus is dealing with that. I think more, more of a source of anguish for King Jesus was the anticipation of the separation that had to happen between him and God the Father. Imagine having perfect communion with God the Father and that being severed and separated while his work was being finished on the cross. This, I believe, was harder for Jesus than even the physical anguish, though both were terrible. And as he's, as he's dealing with this, as, as it's coming near, as he's as he's beginning to, to feel, the Bible records that he sweat drops of blood and people can think that that's just imagery, but, but medically, there is a condition where you can be stressed and have such deep anxiety that, that the capillaries in the, and, and, and your veins that will release blood, and you can, you can sweat blood, and this is the level of stress that Jesus was under. And when he's in the midst of that, what does he do? When he's in the midst of that kind of struggle, he's going through that kind of anguish, he tells the rest of the disciples, he says, I need you guys to stay here. Stay here and pray. And he grabs the three men closest to him. He grabs Peter, James, and John. He says, I need you guys. Come on. I need you guys to pray with me. I need you to stand, watch, and pray with me. Now, here's the thing. If King Jesus felt compelled to have his friends praying with him in his time of struggle, then you and I are probably not too spiritual to do the same. I realize there are varying levels of maturity in this room. Some of you have been Christians a long time. Some of you have walked with the Lord for a long time. Some of you have a vibrant prayer life. But I I need you to see that King Jesus himself did not see it as a sign of weakness to call close to him friends that he could trust and ask them to stand and pray with him. If Jesus did that, I would encourage you to do the same. None of us are a super Christian to the point where we don't need something that Jesus saw need for. Okay? Now, I want to point out, to, I want to point out something that many of you have probably already noticed and related to. When Jesus needed his friends the most, they failed him. I want to plead with you to please not let an experience like that keep you from the benefits of real community. I wish I could tell you that if, if you do what I'm teaching you from the scriptures, if you're real and open and vulnerable with people, that you'll never experience pain because of it. I wish I could assure you that that's true. Unfortunately, I have to assure you that the opposite is true. There is probably going to happen. If you are really open and you are really truthful and you are vulnerable with people and you let them in and you, you have them pray for you and you pray for them and relationship gets real, there's absolutely opportunity there to get hurt. And, and it probably will happen. It happened to the Lord. It happened to King Jesus. Imagine he knows what he's, what he's about to go through. And, and it's not like Jesus was, was freaked out much, right? Right? I mean, the guys are on a boat on the middle of water, and, and this boat's about to capsize, and Jesus is down taking a nap. The disciples have to go shake him like, <clears throat> Lord, you know, we got a hurricane going on out here, and we're on a boat. Um, do you got anything to say about this? And he's, you know, Jesus walks up. He's like, be still. Right, and the storm goes still. You don't see Jesus freaked out a lot, so you would think the guys would know, like, well, something serious is going on here. You'd think they'd be able to sit an hour and pray. And yet, these guys that were closest to Christ, they were too tired, and they did, they failed him. they let him down. Now clearly, he already knew that would happen, yet he still saw fit to draw them close, to be open with them. He let those guys know he was struggling. That's hard for some of us to do, especially you guys. I get it, I promise. You're not tougher than Jesus, though. You're not. If you are really open and vulnerable with people, you will probably get hurt at some point, but it won't be nearly as bad as living in the misery of isolation with no real relationships. You've got to come to believe that. Being real with people, having real relationships will open you up to pain, yes. But it's a very good trade-off and much more beneficial for you than to live at arm's length from people which many of you have decided to do that. You've been hurt just enough times where you said, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. And so you do this with everybody. You put your walls up. You do what you gotta do to not be emotionally invested and you just keep them at bay. I, I promise you, I understand. I promise you I've done it myself and I promise you it's sinful and it's wrong. And if it's where you're at, not only must you realize that it's not to your benefit, you need to repent and ask God to help you, to not do that anymore. We're called to live in authentic, real community, and that requires vulnerability. James tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for each other. And we see that even King Jesus, though he had no sin to confess, that he desired for his friends to pray with and for him Sin always isolates and keeps us separated from each other, but the gospel has the power to reunite us for our good in the accomplishing of the mission that God has given us. I just, want to, I just want to say to you one more time, if you know that's you, if you've been hurt because people have failed you just like Jesus experienced, people seemed like they didn't care, they even used information, the fact that you were vulnerable, they used that against you, that's terrible, and I'm really sorry, but the right response is not then to just keep everybody pushed out as a defense mechanism. That's not what the scriptures call you to. It will cost you to live in real community, but there will be great joy and benefit because of it. I think that's clear from the scriptures. You're just gonna have to decide if you're gonna believe this or you're gonna believe what you've decided about it. Anytime I run up and I realize that my thoughts, my opinions, my ideas run up and contrary to the scriptures, I have a choice every time. And the right choice is always lay down what I've come to believe and trust these scriptures. This is God's word for us. It's a love letter to us. And it's a way to joy and peace, fulfillment and happiness. Now, I said that Sin isolates, but the gospel has the power to reunite us for our good and accomplishing the mission that God has given us. And I've said gospel several times during the course of this message, and that's not odd for a sermon here at Love City. The gospel is our great jewel. It is the message that we have. It is the good news we have to proclaim. And so I want to explain to you what I mean when I say gospel. Gospel does literally mean good news. But the the good news of the gospel is, Oftentimes we can, we can do evangelism and we can go out and we can say to people things like, Jesus will save you. You can be saved. Trust the Lord. And the problem for much of our culture today is they, they, they would ask you the question, save from what? Many people have come to believe that what determines somebody's eternity has everything to do with what they do. You know, some people believe if if I'm a generally good person, I, I should go to heaven, and most people you encounter on the street would assume that they're in that category. I know my own heart. I'm a good person. The problem with that is it reflects nothing of what the Bible has to say about whether or not someone will be reconciled to God for eternity. Here's the deal. The bad news is what makes the good news make so much sense and be so beautiful. So i got to give you the bad news first. The bad news is that God created man in his image. Everything was perfect. God himself is perfect. And we had perfect relationship with him. And yet, we sinned. We rebelled against him. And from that point on, every single person has been born a sinner. By nature and by choice, we sin against God. None of us, the scriptures are clear, none of us are perfect. And he he reemphasized it by saying, no, not even one. None of us is perfect. And so what we have to realize is you have a perfect, a holy God. What's required for relationship with a perfect and holy God is perfection. That's what the scriptures say. In order to be in relationship with God, you must be perfect. Is this bad news for anyone within the sound of my voice yet? Is anybody who maybe didn't know the good news, at this point, I'd be sweating because I am vibrantly aware that I am imperfect. I will absolutely have to lean on God's grace probably before I get to my truck to leave church tonight, to leave this gathering of the saints. I will probably yet again have to lean on the grace of God and trust in his forgiveness. I stumble often. I am imperfect. And so that realization is what makes the good news so beautiful because Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that none of us could pull off. that was part of what made him able to step in and pay the price we should have paid. See, what Jesus took is what we deserved. He lived the life we couldn't, and then he died the death we should have. He stepped in. It's much much like this. If If you were to commit a murder, be caught for it. You're on death row. They take you take you into the chamber, strap you to the table. They lower the needles down with the two chemicals that each one is harmless by itself, but put them together, they're gonna to kill you. That's the way they do it. it. Keeps everybody's conscience clean. I hit one button, you hit the other. Nobody actually killed them, right? You're in there. You deserve it. They strap you down. They're about to put the needles in your arms. You're about to be killed because you killed someone. Are you going there with me? Is everyone with me? It's real important to get this. This is, this is exactly what Jesus did. At the moment, as you're about to get what you rightly deserve, you've murdered someone, and so you're about to be murdered. In comes Jesus, kicks the door down, and says, stop. For some reason, he's got the authority to get him to stop. He says, stop. Take him off of there. Take her off of there, and strap me in. I know. I know they did it. I didn't do it. I'm innocent. Absolutely. However, I want you to put me in their place. And when I do that, I want that to be enough. You let them off. This is the gospel. The Bible says that without the reconciling power of Jesus, we are dead in our sins. We're good as dead. We are separated from the God that made us. Jesus stood in. He took the cross we deserved. He bled his blood and purchased us with it. He bought us from sin, death, and darkness, and he brought us into life and light and joy, and relationship with God. And so, not only did he die that death, but as we already read today, three days later he rose, showed himself to many people, ate some fish just to prove it. This is the gospel. And here's the thing. It's amazing to me how many people I can meet on the street, and I can ask them a question, phrase something like, How is it that you believe that someone can go to heaven when they die? It would shock you how many people's answer is some form of, I need to be a good person. And you you may be somebody that is a committed member here and you may wonder why a week doesn't go by without a very detailed explanation of what the gospel is. It's because it is the message that matters most. If we are not holding high the truth of the gospel, we are doing nothing. I could gather you here every week and I could find sweet stories and I could read you a nice scripture. I could get you feeling really good about yourself to go home and tell your friends, hey, this guy's funny. He made me feel good. Come on back. I could easily do that, but I refuse. What you need is the gospel. You need to hear it every week and you need to preach it to yourselves. You need to tell your friends and family and every person that doesn't know the truth that the gospel saves, that there's hope in Christ. They need not be hopeless. They need not spend eternity separated from the God that made them. they need not live lives separated without real love and relationships. All of these things that are broken can be fixed, and they're fixed in Jesus, our King. So this is why you will hear the gospel here every week.